The story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus has always been one of my favorites. After all, as Mark pointed out in his first message, it proves that the first post-resurrection sermon was entirely based on the Old Testament. I've always been intrigued by Jesus' claim, everything must be fulfilled about me, sorry, everything that must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Many people approach the Old Testament as a source for specific messianic prophecies, a sort of connect the dots exercise between prophecy and fulfillment. However, Jesus' vision here is far more robust. He's claiming that the entire Hebrew Bible points to him. He fulfills it on a much grander scale. So as a reminder, the Hebrew Bible is divided into three major sections. The Torah, which is associated with Moses, that's why he says the law of Moses. The prophets, which for Jews includes what we call the historical books, as well as the major and minor prophets. And then the writings, of which the first and longest book is the Psalms. So when Jesus speaks of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, this is shorthand for the entire Hebrew Bible, saying that it all points to him. Today, we're going to focus on the law of Moses and how it points to Jesus. Although the Hebrew word Torah can refer broadly to instruction, today I'm going to focus on its more specific reference to the covenant stipulations or laws at Sinai. And this will come as no surprise to all of you in the room who know me. Before they recognized him, the disciples say to Jesus, to Jesus, about Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Redeem from what? The Jewish law? Many Christians think that the law is precisely that part of the Old Testament that Christ does away with. Or at best, perhaps the law is a negative foil pointing to our need for Jesus. But here's the fun part. We don't actually have to use much imagination this week to know what Jesus might have said about how the law points to him because he said it himself in a Sermon on the Mount. His words might come as a bit of a surprise, though, if we slow down and pay attention. So before we hunker down in this passage, let's set the scene. As Jesus traveled around Galilee, people were intrigued. Everyone was talking about him. Jesus' power was astonishing. When he touched sick people, they were healed. People were throwing away their crutches and dancing in the streets. People with chronic pain could finally see straight again. People with seizures experienced an inner calm they hadn't had in years. People tormented by demons were finally free. It wasn't on the evening news and it hadn't made the front page because there was no such thing. These remarkable stories had gone viral by word of mouth. People couldn't stop talking about the Jewish teacher from Nazareth who was turning the world upside down. They had a natural curiosity to hear him for themselves. There was something different about Jesus. And so they flocked to him in droves. But following Jesus was risky business. He was controversial. There was a question mark over his head. Jesus didn't seem to fit the religious system of his day. He was not an insider. Those drawn to his message risked being thrown out of the synagogue, effectively cutting them off from their Jewish community, including their family, their neighbors, their business partners, their customers, basically everyone. 
Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew, was where he laid his cards on the table, at least most of them. And if we take a step back to see how Matthew shapes the entire Jesus story, we see that Matthew patterns his entire gospel to mirror the exodus and the giving of the law. Glenn talked with us last week about how Jesus is prefigured in the Exodus and the Passover, how they point to him. Well, Jesus defines his entire ministry in relation to this pattern. So to understand Jesus, we must understand Sinai. Repeatedly in this sermon, Jesus isolates aspects of Jewish law saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. In so doing, he's claiming authority as the law giver. But what exactly was he trying to do? Was he critiquing the current administration by starting a reform movement? Or was he breaking with the Jewish religion and its foundational teachings in the Torah? Although large crowds are following Jesus, he speaks here to those who've signed on, to those who are his disciples. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. This initial statement would have come as a huge relief to the crowds following him. They wanted to like him. They wanted him to be the real deal. And if he was trying to throw the Old Testament under the bus, then they would have been in serious trouble. I can see them elbowing each other as they listen. See, I told you he's not a rebel. He's not overturning the Torah. But Jesus' statement comes as a bit of a surprise to us because most Christians today have the impression that Jesus brought an end to the Old Testament and its laws. There's even an old hymn that celebrates it. Free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus was afraid that people would misunderstand this about him. He struck people then and he strikes people now as so different that he knew we would need clarification. Don't misunderstand why I have come. God is not scrapping plan A and going with plan B. He tells them we're still on plan A. The Old Testament law is still in effect. It's not going away. Jesus says of the law of Moses and the prophets, he says that they're still the main deal. He explains, I came to accomplish their purpose. If Jesus is the one to whom the Old Testament points, and if Jesus' point is to fulfill the law's purpose, then it will be essential for us to understand what that purpose is. We'll get to that in a moment, but let's let Jesus finish his thought first. In verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, which Last I checked, they haven't, though sometimes it feels like we've gotten close during this pandemic. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Now, some have tried to suggest that the purpose of the law was achieved when Jesus died or rose again or ascended to heaven. However, this phrase, which the New Living Translation renders appropriately as until its purpose is achieved, could also be translated, until all things come to be. That is, all that God has planned for the world must be accomplished before the law becomes irrelevant. Jesus accomplished extraordinary things, but when I turn on the news, I can easily see that God is not finished. 
until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, until every tear is wiped away and there's no more sorrow, until the lion lies down with the lamb, the law will not disappear. The Torah will last as long as creation until the renewal of all things, which is why many of you in Kirk Chapel have just spent an entire term studying the Torah, because we actually believe it's still relevant. So what does that mean for you and me in the meantime? Well, Jesus went on to explain, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in God's kingdom is found in fulfillment of Torah or Old Testament law. Those undermining it will lose status in his kingdom. Then he says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus' first statement about the relevance of the law shocked us, like what? The law is still in effect? This last statement would have shocked his listeners. What? He warns everyone, I'm not here to lower the bar and make it even easier to get into the kingdom. Even Jewish religious leaders will find themselves on the outside looking in. The teachers of religious law have devoted their entire lives to understanding and teaching the Torah. If even they don't have it right, what hope is it there for the rest of us? For most of us, the past two years have been difficult. From the pandemic to politics and from natural disasters to job insecurity, we've barely had a break. And it's likely that if you've suffered any extra difficulties, death in the family, a positive diagnosis, or any hard thing, it has felt like salt in the wound. And now you come to chapel or tune in online and I tell you more bad news? The Old Testament law is still in effect? And Jesus expects perfection? Please don't close your laptops or mute me just yet. Hang in there and I promise this message will bring good news. Our problem is that we have a distorted view of the purpose of the law in the first place. Most of us have thought or been told negative things about the Old Testament law, like it was doomed to fail from the beginning, or its only purpose was to show people what miserable failures they were, or it was how ancient Jews earned their salvation, and now Christ has made a different way for us to be right with God. The problem is that none of these statements hold up to, holds up to closer scrutiny. The Bible teaches us that Old Testament law was a gift and that it was good and that it worked. And it was never Israel's means of earning salvation. It was a way of carrying out Israel's mission. When Jesus calls for righteousness better than the teachers of religious law, we need to understand righteousness is a relational term. That's not how we usually think of it. Righteousness means faithfulness to a covenant relationship. It means relating well to God and others. So to really grasp the point of Old Testament law, let's think for a moment about where the Ten Commandments appear in Exodus. Chapter 20. Moses does not show up in Egypt with two stone tablets. Here's mine. See if they can <laughs> just not disappear. Moses does not show up in Egypt with two stone tablets and say, hey, guys, guess what? I can get you out of slavery if you just agree to live by these 10 rules. 
No, God delivers them from Egypt first, without first doing an audit of their morality or searching their homes for idols. Purely by his grace, he sets them free. After he saves them, he brings them to Mount Sinai, where they experience him in all his glory. He has already set them free from slavery. He does not impose a law on them against their will. It's not how they earn salvation. God explains the purpose of the law in Exodus 19. Let's listen in. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. They've already been out of Egypt two whole months when they get to Mount Sinai, where they'll receive the law. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God has already graciously delivered them and invited them into his presence. He says, now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Some of you in that room remember what Hebrew word is uh, is translated, my own special treasure. So if you want to feel really smug, turn to the person next to you and tell them, what Hebrew word is that? In ancient times, a powerful king would have dealings with many other nations. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the most powerful king of all. He tells the Israelites that out of all the nations, he has chosen them for a special task. When he calls them his own special treasure, he's not thinking up something nice to say. He uses a technical term in Hebrew, a term some of you no doubt remember, segala. A segala is a treaty term that designates a treaty partner with special status, like an ambassador who represents the king. And here's the point. God appointed Israel to represent him to the nations. Surrounding nations were supposed to be able to watch Israel to find out what Yahweh is like. That's why God gives them the law. In it, he teaches them how to live well so that they can express his character to a watching world. The law is not arbitrary. It's not meant to kill their fun or cramp their style. It's not how they earn salvation. The law is part of God's mission to bless all nations. In order for Israel to, to fulfill their calling, they must learn to care for the vulnerable, to conduct business fairly and without greed, to love their neighbor, to worship Yahweh exclusively. The law was not a ball and chain. It was a prescription for life in freedom. In Exodus 19, God calls them a holy nation. The law enables them to maintain that status. It sets them apart from everyone else. Sinai is where Israel is commissioned to do God's work in the world. The purpose of the law was to bring light to the nations, to show people an alternative way to live that would fulfill their human vocation. So we're told Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought back the people's answer to the Lord. 
Moses brokers this agreement between the Lord and the Israelites, and they're totally on board. God does not coerce them. They willingly sign on to this new vocation to represent God to the nations. And God gave Moses two stone tablets to signal this, their treaty agreement. Most people assume that there are two tablets because all the commands did not fit on one. But this ignores how treaties work in the ancient world. We know from archaeology that treaty tablets were made in duplicate so that each party would be held accountable. Normally, each party would deposit their copy in the most holy place of their temple so that their God could ensure compliance. Well, in Israel's case, both copies are deposited in the tabernacle. What does this mean? I think it's a sign that Yahweh will oversee the faithfulness of both parties. If Jesus had come along to say, you know what, that law, it doesn't work, forget about it. He would have been abandoning God's mission to bless all nations. No, Jesus didn't abandon the law. He came to show us how it should be done. He came to fulfill it. It's true, Israel had failed in their mission, but the problem was not with the law, but with their hearts. God became flesh so that he could fulfill Israel's side of the covenant on their behalf. Jesus demonstrated covenant faithfulness and invited his followers into his own faithfulness, transforming their hearts by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is not just the lawgiver, which we get the sense of with the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He's also the law keeper. He's ensuring the covenant faithfulness of both parties by becoming flesh and carrying out Israel's task on their behalf. As followers of Jesus, we are his representatives among the nations. Our lives are to demonstrate God's character to a watching world. The law is not a checklist, but a tutor helping us discover ways to put shoe leather on our faith. Yes, you and I need Jesus, but not because the law is a problem, because we are a problem. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites his followers to rediscover the grace of the Old Testament and in so doing to rediscover our mission. We may prefer to get rid of the law, but Jesus wants to get rid of our sin so that we can accomplish the work to which he has called us. If you want to tr um, chase down another thread later, check out Jeremiah chapter 31, the famous new covenant passage. Verses 31 to 34 says that God's making a new covenant and it's not like the previous covenant. And we often assume that means that covenant was faulty, but it's very clear from Jeremiah 31. If you slow down and read it slowly, read it carefully, the thing that's different about the new covenant is the people, not the law. So let's pretend for a moment that at Sinai, God initiated a lunar mission. Let's just like put it in a different context. So let's say it was a lunar mission. God gave his people a rocket ship and an instruction manual about how to launch the rocket successfully so that they could make it to the moon. Time and again, they crashed the rocket. The problem is not that God gave them a faulty rocket or that the instruction manual was miscoded or irrelevant. The problem was that they failed to follow all the safety protocol and flight instructions. Some of you in this room 
are aviators and you know how important it is to follow all the procedures when you fly a plane. You can't just, excuse the pun, wing it. God became human so that he could personally demonstrate how to fly the rocket. Jesus does not come and say, forget the moon, I have a better idea. Or never mind this instruction manual, it's outdated. Jesus comes and says, climb aboard. Let me show you how to fly this thing. He follows all the procedures carefully and takes us to the moon, training us so that we can keep on flying to the moon safely over and over again. Okay, so let's be real. Our mission is not to go to the moon. Some of you have a mission of actually flying airplanes, and you'll get to do that this summer after classes let out. And I, I'm excited for you, but obviously that's not precisely what's happening at Sinai. You and I share Israel's mission to be a light to the nations. Our obedience matters to that mission because without following God's instructions, we will crash and burn. That is, we will fail in assisting others to discover Jesus. The Christian life is not just a private matter between me and God. Our mission connects us to each other and communicates to everyone around us. This is really obvious every time a prominent Christian leader falls into sin. For the watching world, one leader's failure to live with integrity signals that something is amiss with Christianity as a whole. Let me be clear. The law is not the point of the Christian life. It's not an end in itself. The law is our means of demonstrating that we belong to God and to the community of faith. The Old Testament law works a bit like chores do in a family. Parents often give their children chores to do. But I have never met a parent who decided to have kids so that they'd have someone who could help with chores. Right? Chores are not the point of having kids. And the law is not the point of God's covenant with Israel. We have kids because we want to enjoy family memories and build a life together. We give our kids chores so that we can have a happy home that facilitates positive relationships. And sometimes that works. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't. God enters into a covenant with Israel because he wants a relationship, not because he wants to give them laws. The laws are the means by which Israel carries out her mission. Not every Old Testament law is relevant to us in the same way that it was to ancient Israel. So usually when I talk about these things, people want to push back and say like, but wait, aren't some of the laws outdated? Like you're not asking us to change our diet. In fact, I packed a lunch today that includes pork chops. Um, that tells you right there that I don't think that all of the Old Testament laws apply to me in the same way that they did to ancient Israel. We no longer worship in a temple or offer sacrifices, so the laws on ritual purity and sacrifice, which I would put in that category um, or related category, food laws, those are no longer in effect. In Acts 15, the early church made another shift when they realized that it was time to include people from other nations in the covenant committee community. So the laws that were designated or designed to reinforce ethnic differences, this is especially where the food laws belong, um, and as well as circumcision, these were set aside because their purpose had been met. The rest of the laws can continue to shape our thinking about how to honor God in our current context. I used to talk in class about how shoveling your sidewalk 
in Three Hills when it, after it snows is a way of showing love for your neighbor and a way of ensuring your neighbor's safety on your property. We don't need to build a parapet around our roof because we don't hang out up there. We have peaked roofs, not flat roofs like they had in, um, in ancient, ancient Israel. Um, I'm going to have to think of some new illustrations because I don't think we're going to be using snow shovels down here in Southern California. The law is part of God's mission to bless all nations. If you're watching this message this morning and you're not Jewish, then you can thank God for Old Testament law because it worked. Jesus' faithfulness to the covenant and its stipulations and it's his sacrifice on our behalf is how we got here. Remember, Jesus didn't abandon the law. He came to show us how it should be done. And now he's calling us into a life of faithfulness. God has no plan B. It's our privilege now to follow in his footsteps and participate in his mission to shine his light to the world. The law of Moses pointed forward to Jesus because he was both the law giver and the law keeper. His faithfulness ushers us into the blessings of the covenant community. That's the good news. Now it's our privilege to live in obedience to God's commands so that we can participate in his mission to be a light to all nations. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these men and women who are gathered in Kirk Chapel and who are watching online. I thank you for bringing them to a place in their lives where what matters most to them is what matters to you. You've taken them in, you've brought them into a Christian community. They've given up freedoms to be part of this community because they believe that there's something to be gained. Lord, I pray that you would shower your blessings on them and that as they, as they learn to walk in obedience to your commands, that you would let Prairie College be a light on a hill, a, a light that, that draws others into its warm center, that people would be so drawn to this community where, where people are serious about following God and making radical decisions to say no to their flesh, to say no to their selfishness, and to serve others. Thank you for the example you sent us in Jesus and for the way that he demonstrated how to walk well with you and with each other. Let us follow his example. Let us be a people who bear your name with honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.